This is the House of X Book Club, and I am Rob. Of course, uh, this is episode 30, and I'm pretty stoked that it's episode... I mean, episode 30. That blows my mind. That's not even counting the bonus episodes that we've thrown in there. But episode 30, holy crap. Hey, Rowan, how's it going? It's going. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Are you ready to talk about X-Men comics? Of course. Great. And Drew, what's new? Oh, not much. You know, I'm I'm kind of disappointed that we have to give up our, you know, 80s inspired comics from the What If 13 from last episode and go back to the 60s style. But you know, I'll get through it. We we'll we'll hit on some more uh, some more What If at some point. So it'll be it'll be cool. And Shane, what's going on? Um, I thought we were talking about advancement in toilets today, not X Men comics. Um. I'm ill prepared. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, we can talk wrote, about the I wrote all day a three long, and a half page <laughs> diatribe on on the latest in flushing technology. I have nothing for X Men forty nine or fifty. All right. Well, we'll get back to you later because I certainly have questions on that. Um, <laughs> Roger, what do you know, man? Well, <clears throat> well, at first, when you started the intros tonight, you said, Rowan, how's it going? Drew, what's new? <laughs> and then you didn't continue it with Shane or I. So I don't know. I, well, I just feel let because down. I wasn't quick enough to like come up with a rhyme for Shane or Roger. Shane um, feeling sane? I don't know. <laughs> Wait, was he rhyming? I get, Did I miss yeah, that? I could. Yeah. You didn't notice? Yeah. No. I, I said, I said, Rowan, how's it going? Drew, what's new? I started to say, "Hey, Shane, the same," um, but but it kept sticking in my head that fuck. Now you got to do something for Roger, so I just let it go. <laughs> Roger, the old codger. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's good to see you guys. Good to see you guys. So, episode thirty, you guys, three Woo! zero. We did it. Yeah, feels that, more like three hundred. That simultaneously yeah. feels like <laughs> that's you know, just your. We've hip. been doing it forever, but like also only thirty. Only thirty, yeah. Like, oh, oh, only thirty. I'm like, wow, thirty. I was seventeen when this started. Yeah. <laughs> now I can't yeah. feel myself. This podcast not even a year old right now, as of this recording. <laughs> it's a book club, but it does feel like it. Yes, it's yes, it's a book club. Um. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, X Men number forty nine. You guys. The release date was August third, nineteen sixty eight. Cover date was October of 68. By the way, the cover artist fucking rules. Oh my God, it was so cool. Now, this cover is not as exciting as I would like it to be, but the cover art did grab me. Like, there's some interesting stuff happening on this cover with the X Men kind of traipsing over this weird head. Um, it's a little, it's a little like abstract. And the reason is, is because it's Jim Steranko doing the art. And when I learned that he was the cover artist, I got I got giddy because that is a whole different direction than the X-Men are used to. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, he only does the cover. But credits here. We've got uh, Arnold Drake writing again. I don't know how I feel about that at this point. Penciler, <laughs> Werner Roth. Don Heck doing the layouts, John Tartaglioni doing the inks, and Herb 
Cooper doing the lettering. This is now they've got like a whole list of people who are doing the lettering for for X-Men. Uh, if you remember when we started, there were just three guys that did it. So, um, oh, the title of this is Who Dares Defy dot 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 the Demi-Men. This is uh, the first cover, Steranko cover, by the way, for the X-Men. Um, he did uh, he did work for Captain America. Uh, let's see, it was Captain America 110 and 111, and then 113, and then he did a bunch of covers. He did Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Those Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. covers are iconic. It's so psychedelic, where everything's kind of twisting and turning, and there's all kinds of colors. You could put a blue light to that shit or black light to that shit. And it'll just blow your mind. Put on really cool iron stuff. butterfly. <laughs> That's right. And it got a DeVita baby all over the place. So, <laughs> so it's, it's just cool. I mean, I love his, I love his art. This it's, it's, it's great stuff. Don't um, forget he did some Dr. Strange too. And that's where his Oh, art... did he ever? Yeah, yeah, man. That was the best. Yeah. His art was meant for so, Dr. Strange. His art was meant for Doctor Strange. Now he really started getting getting weird with Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, and it it really did something for the character of Nick Fury because I think for the most part people just didn't care, you know, they didn't care. And then suddenly there's this new innovative artwork, and and it's it's opening people's eyes. Now he also did stuff for Heavy Metal magazine, which I could totally see. Yeah, um, you know that's that's definitely right up right up his alley. So. Um, there's this uh, really interesting psychedelic feel to like all the art he does. And of course, we're going to talk more about him later, but let's get to the story stuff real quick. Um, so this, this issue kind of brings the team back together in, in San Francisco, California. Okay. Angel encourages Gene to mind link all of the members, which is interesting because this is the first time she's really done that. Mm -hmm. And, and when she does, we kind of learn what everybody's up to in this issue. We also meet a new villain, somebody called Mesmero and he's running a cult in the name of Magneto. And these guys, they're supposedly a bunch of mutants in hel helmets and robes who have this plan to draw latent mutants toward them so that they can build an army. And in the process, they mesmerize a bunch of people, like anybody who's a mutant but doesn't have their powers kind of, you know, that aren't using their powers. They have latent powers. They get mesmerized and just start walking off. Well, one of the people that they, they mesmerize and is heading toward them steps out into traffic. And, of course, Bobby in San Francisco, he sees this happen and he saves her. And it's a young brown-haired lady by the name of Lorna Dane. And I had totally forgotten about this. I wasn't expecting it. And when she said her name was Lorna Dane, I got all excited because Lorna Dane is big shit in the X-Men universe. And it's still important to this day in comics. I'm curious, out of those that know who Lorna Dane is, uh, what did you think when you, when you saw that? I was pumped. Even from the beginning, I saw the cover. I was like, all right. Then, like, past the second page, once we got um Warren out of the main focus. I got yeah. really excited about some of the art. Uh-huh. 
I was confused by some of the choices, but man, Merez Mesmero in that first panel, I thought he looked really cool. And yeah. it's just different. I, like there's just a completely different direction in this book. It feels like from what we, from the last actual issue we read. Yeah. And these are the same artists, right? These are the same guys doing the art, yeah. but the art and the writing totally has a, a different feel to it. Like it, really it all does. feels different. It just I mean, all of we, a sudden everything gelled. We made fun of Arnold Drake's writing in the last uh, last episode, but just a little. <laughs> he deserved but it. Here, I hope he cried. Yeah, now here it just it yeah. works. It really works. The art works. The writing works. Raj and and Rowan and Drew, what did you guys think? Any of you know who uh, Lorna Dane is? Yeah, I didn't know what her origin was, and I, it's it's weird to see it being so mundane. Really. Uh huh. And it's I find I find it funny that uh, Iceman kind of like secretly dropped ice on the ground that she would slip on so he could be there to catch her. She oh, was, was that what was happening? I'm like, yeah. no, oh, he's, he he. Well, yeah, he put ice on the ground to make her slip so that she wouldn't keep walking into the into traffic know, into traffic. Okay, fair enough. But still, he was there to catch her. I'm like, I mean, this is his new like pickup move, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i don't know i think that that's stretching it you, a little bit there roger yeah um i don't know i see potential uh, rowan latent powers are supposed to be powers that are not activated right right yeah but the thing about lorna dane is she went and took a nap and then she wakes up she comes out in a robe because she decided to take a shower as you do in a stranger's house which is a little weird. And then she has her, her green hair. And then she says. <laughs> she says that it was a lifelong secret. So she knows about the hair. She's had the hair. Which means it's not. He was not, born with green hair. Which means it's not latent. No, no uh, I mean that would suck if that were your only mutant power. What mutant power do you have? I've got green hair. Right, which I'm just saying that not all her powers were latent, is what I mean. Yeah. Okay. She's obviously a mutant well, because she was born with green hair. But that but that begs a, a, the further question, how is it that he's calling the mutants and not humans? Is there like a different it's high frequency. We've been over this. Yeah. It's oh, the, God. Here him. we go. <laughs> hey, hey, we're, we don't forget who this is. This is Mesmero, and he is a follower of Magneto. That means so it's, it's all due to magnetism. magnetism. No, it's the, it's the psyche generator <laughs> and dog whistles. The psyche generator. Dog whistles. <laughs> like you were saying, she sort of walks into traffic. Bobby stops her, takes her to his place so she can, I guess, take a nap because she was in shock. Poor Zelda. Um, yeah. And the X-Men have to leave <laughs> to, to go fight these these cultists or whatever they are. And they leave uh they leave Beast at Bobby's apartment because Beast is gonna work on a uh mobile cerebro unit that he's been putting together. And so he's there. Now, of course, he's in costume, and she comes out of her shower to see the beast standing there he's she sees bobby there too but he's as Iceman. oh he's as Iceman. yeah 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 and she doesn't know that bobby is Iceman. 
Right. But but you remember Beast is like, oh no, Iceman's not here. He he went off to do something. I'm his friend, and I'm getting ready to go to a costume party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the X Men come back. They they then leave Iceman to to protect her while the X Men go off to fight the Demi Men. You get Mesmero and some Demi Men who show up at Iceman's place, and they capture Iceman and Lorna Dane because they worship her and that's how that story ends <laughs> now i think that's a great way because at the end of the issue you're like wait what the fuck what's happening no we don't want to hurt you we want to worship you and they get down on their knees and they're bowing to her i thought it was cool i loved it i i really enjoyed this story this is one of my favorite issues in a long time the art and the writing seemed to really gel there was still a few things that were kind of convenient like the avengers loaning them the fantastic car for some reason especially since they have multiple versions of their own planes helicopters planes cars but they still don't have fuel <laughs> so the, and then why were why were bobby and hank skydiving in in dress shoes right <laughs> that would really bothered me i actually did searches on the internet is like do people skydive in nice shoes and i i, I was i was baffled it was part of an act they were daredevils they were doing a show or something i don't know that wasn't explained very well no it wasn't you're right drew that scene was interesting because gene is trying to link up with the other x-men and she says something and hank hears it and gets distracted and almost dies (laughs) because he's distracted by gene talking to him while he's falling (laughs) but but that was interesting too because gene low-key has been in constant contact with all of the X-Men this whole time. Bobby just calling out, she's not going to hear that if she's not monitoring him. She is an Omega-class mutant. Not right now. <laughs> not in the co- continuity that we're reading. And yeah. Nice was... try, Drew. Yeah, I don't know. So was Bobby was <laughs> Bobby breaking into the mansion, or was he pooping out the window? On the first page, because I couldn't really figure it out. Like, why was he? You mean Warren? Oh, Angel. Warren. Yeah. Yeah. Why was he breaking into the mansion? Because he couldn't stay away. Which means he's in New York. So three X Men are in New York, and two are in San Francisco. But doesn't he have a key? He's not supposed to be there. But they inherited it. Yeah, but he probably has a key. That's weird. He's just—it's because he flies. He's—he's a weirdo that flies. Because he's a little bit. I think it's because. I think it's because... <laughs> Just hate him. It had to be said. It all comes back to that. Yeah, apparently. I think it's. I think he went through the window just because he's not supposed to be there, so it's a secretive thing he's doing. And, you know, when you're doing something secretive, you don't go to the front door and unlock it. You climb in a window. Haven't you ever climbed in your own window before? <laughs> yes, when I didn't yes. have yes. my fucking keys. <laughs> <laughs> He probably doesn't. It probably doesn't have a pocket on this costume, and he doesn't have the key with him. In all the fucking yeah. bondage rope, though, he could at least tie it up to himself. No, the problem is, is every time he looks down at his costume to look for the pocket, he gets blinded by the hideousness. It's a hideous yeah. costume. Yeah, there were a couple of things like that might have gotten left out of this issue, but Scott, Gene, and um, Angel are flying around in the fantastic car and scott's looking at the monitor and he says we've got we've spotted a mutant squad how the fuck did he know it was a mutant squad and then 
Hank is talking about Lorna and he's like, oh, she's a latent mutant. How does he know that she's a latent mutant? Yeah, he has the Cerebro, the mobile Cerebro unit. So maybe that's how he knows that. But he hasn't used it yet. It's like he was yeah. still working on it. Yeah. I don't know. It was a shot in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I it makes me curious because uh, last night we were talking before recording about a missing issue to this. Like the it would have been it would have been issue forty nine, I believe. Yeah, the Matoxo issue that it's Matoxo hinted at the lava man in in I believe it's forty seven. And then they just mm -hmm. skipped that issue. They didn't print it for whatever reason. I wonder if some of this, like him breaking into the mansion, I wonder if that would have been explained or like why there's three X-Men in New York and two in San Francisco. I wonder if any of that stuff would have made this make more sense. Interesting. Maybe it's it, on that missing issue. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. Do you think that to go back to to go back to what Shane was saying a second ago? On page 12, Hank is using the prototype portable cere Cerebro, and then she comes out in the bathrobe, and that's how he pieces together that she's a latent mutant. Ah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. I would have said it was the green hair, but you know. Well. <laughs> not the sultry gaze. People have colored hair nowadays, at least. But they do, they do. Yeah, that would be but how a awesome totally normal thing That's, in anime. You know, yeah. there was a, a weird. Dane, you guys. There was in the mid twentieth century, like a whole like weird color palette where people did have like bright co color dyes. So, my grandmother in the eighties had it, purple hair. It Come wasn't on. unheard of to to dye your hair an odd color, so that wouldn't have been the the clue. Roger's laughing, but you know it's true. Well, I mean, you think about it. Well, I mean, I guess that that was well, the early 80s, but are you being served? That, But that was supposed to be set. Like, yeah, the old women had, like, pink hair and and the, the, yeah. the was it, um, um, uh, Molly Sudgeon. She had different color hair every episode. So even though it was in the 80s, obviously it was based on, you know, people from the 70s or even earlier it was 70s when that when that show was filmed i believe i've got some thoughts on this issue i mean i really like it but this this mutant cult and they really do feel like a cult uh the way they're you know bowing down to to uh mesmero who's leading this group in the name of magneto who's who we assume is dead right how do we know they're mutants and what are their powers cyclops said so yeah you listen to the Fucking deputy leader, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, uh, I haven't read ahead. So, I mean, I, I, I don't remember. I've read these issues a long time ago, but I don't remember them. But I'm gonna say that I, I get this, I get a robot feeling. You know, I get a robot vibe yeah. on these guys. Yeah. yeah. I, when I was reading this, and you guys will be able to answer this. I don't remember which Tom Holland ex uh, Spider-Man movie it was, but the dude with the fishbowl helmet. Was that not Mesmero? Am I Mysterio. confusing it with someone no, else? No, that's Mysterio. That's Mysterio. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That the whole time I was reading this, I was like, "Isn't this a Spider-Man dude with the fishbowl?" So, anyway, thanks for clearing that up. I had I was very yeah. confused by that. That's Mysterio, and he's he's kind of cool in his own way, but yeah, he's a different thing. He does a whole different thing. I also like just the concept of this cult of mutants who are you know like controlled by mesmero but again mesmero doing this in the name of magneto 
I think that's kind of a cool element. You know, he's he's using the name of a dead he or a dead icon for them and and invoking that that Magneto spirit basically to charge them up, which says a whole lot. I mean, you know, it it's an interesting concept and it's uh, I think it's fairly realistic to be honest. Well, and they yeah. brought it no, I they brought it back a couple of times too, right? There was the the group on asteroid M. Was it were they called the Acolytes? The Acolytes, yes, yeah. They were. Mm-hmm. And there was the there was the big dude. Um now he runs around with hope all the time. Exodus. Exodus, there we go. And he, I think, ran the acolytes for a while okay. as well. Yeah, and he's like even still like in the modern Krakoan age, he's still espousing like the 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 gospel according to Magneto. Hmm. Well, he's a religious fanatic. Yeah. That's his thing. <laughs> That's his mutant power. <laughs> um, at any rate, we talk about like how you can tell that the series is taking a new direction, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's starting to go off in a whole different different direction. I really like the way it's headed. I, I like it a lot. Yeah, there's a bunch of really good things here. Like there was like the yeah. the um on page ten, there's the full page issue or full page spread. They they tried to do they tried to do some new things here. Like they tried mm-hmm. to do some forced perspective with Angel. Um, it didn't work because they accidentally drew both hands the same size. <laughs> but I think that like if the right hand was supposed to be bigger and it was supposed to be closer to the screen, the yeah. left hand should have been much smaller because it was farther away. But when they drew them both the same size, it looked really weird. Ah, uh, yeah. 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 But I mean, it was at least they're putting some effort into making this a different book than what it was an issue ago. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I, I think at this point they're like, what do we do to keep this, you know, what do we do to make this series make money? Um, because we're apparently doing something wrong with all these throwaway villains and, and, you know, generic feeling plots. How do we, how do we make it interesting? Well, I think they figured it out. I don't know. It's good. I like this issue a lot. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, this is definitely, I would say the best issue out of the last 10 or maybe 15 that we've read. Yeah. Not counting, not counting the locust issue because that was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Twenty-four. That was over fifteen ago. Yeah, well, there we go. But Meccano was not. <laughs> I liked McCann- that one. Yeah, it, it was actually it was a lot of fun. All right. Well, before we move on to uh, another wonderful backup story, any last thoughts on this? Anybody? You know when I when I read these um, these two issues. I read them kind of back to back all in, in in one sitting. So they both kind of blur together to me as a singular story, which they are a singular story. That's kind of why I just kept yeah. flipping through. Mm-hmm. And I don't really have anything specific to say about this individual issue, except that it definitely it, it hooks me, which is exactly mm-hmm. what you want. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah, that's a, a great thing. And I didn't, I, I didn't know really who Lorna Dane was, so that didn't really mean much to me. And I was confused about Mesmero, and and I can't, I already can't remember the other dude's name. But you know the, what we discussed earlier. So there were there were some things in here that didn't grip me as much as they would you as a new reader. 
yeah. or me as a new reader, you as as people who've already read it. So, but it it got me interested in reading the next one. So it did its job. So this is a spoiler, but just to let you know, Drew, in the '90s, Lorna Dane has the best set of hair. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> um. All right. Uh. I mean, it's we've only got. You know, we're only going up from here, at least for the next couple issues. Um, but we've got a backstory coming up. So the little backup story, more information on the beast, and that is a beast is born. I mean, <laughs> I think some of the things in this to point out are the fact that the beast was a mutant that was born with his mutation. Because I think in the X-Men, there's a lot of like focus on how... Um, especially later mutants get their powers when they hit puberty, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. But here's, here's the beast and he's born with big feet. You know, he's, he's like drinking a bottle with his feet. He's got big feet, big hands. And uh, the doctor notices it as soon as he's born. And he's strong. He socks up uncle Bob at some point. Because he's talking to him like a baby and he's not talking smart enough. Uncle, B uncle Bob is no Hank McCoy. That's for sure. My only my only uh, thing for this whole five page backup was so Beast is not a mutant because his father worked at the power plant. He's a mutant because his father was a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> I was really surprised we got this story, to be honest, because we've already seen it during the Sentinel story. Yep. Yeah. Like it it well, did kind of flesh it out a little bit, but it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. That's what I was saying earlier. It's like this. We keep getting this rehash of Beast's origin, and we know it. We know it already. Um, but they needed they needed a backup. What are they going to do? Why did so? Um, his father was in the control room in the suit, and then when he's in the hospital, he has a head wrap on, like he got knocked in the head with a log or something. I'm like, is this just, is that the, <laughs> is that the only thing that they have to indicate that someone is in the hospital and not just a lazy bastard that won't get out of bed on Tuesday? Because <laughs> I need me one of those. Yeah, I think that's it. I'm gonna say that the the heat from the from the you know the control rods and everything it heated up his helmet so much that he's got at least second degree burns all over his head from where the helmet was sitting on his head, where it heated up. That's my theory. Sticking to it. Maybe he's like missing that. his hair and is embarrassed. But yeah. so it didn't burn his hands at all, which are no, completely no. bare. No, nope. <laughs> Bush League, Drew. Bush League. Radiation's a tricky thing, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> She's a harsh mistress, Robert. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk for a moment about the obvious. So I'm I'm thinking while he's like radioactive or undergoing the effects of the radiation and whatnot. His wife is visiting him in the hospital. Is that when they conceived Hank while he's laying there in the hospital bed? Wait, wouldn't you? I mean, <laughs> no, you know what I'm I would not say? Yes or no. You're but not I'm touching saying... me until that thing stops glowing in the dark. <laughs> yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah. Mwah, mwah. No. I disagree uh, with Shane. Oh, you want you want you want the glow in the dark peen there, Drew? <laughs> All right, so a glow in the dark peen and fishnets. That's it for you, right there. Huh? Turn, turn the lights off and paint the ceiling. Yeah, <laughs> see, Roger yeah. gets it. Oh, wow, wow. wow. 
This has gone in a weird direction, you guys. <laughs> this is this um, is this right here is a better story than these five pages. Sorry, Rowan. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm it is a better Jim's... story than those five pages. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the influence of Jim Steranko on comics, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's general consensus is we can probably skip the five page, uh, you know, origin stories, but we won't. We'll I can't wait till Hank turns evil and people start kicking the shit out of him. <laughs> oh, he, it's a coming. Yeah. Oh boy. It's a coming. He does a lot of, he does a lot of kicking. Um, and, and Warren too, to be fair, but we're talking about Hank. So Hank can't wait till Hank gets his comeuppance. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about the next issue, the last issue, issue of this episode. What the it beautiful cover. 50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the release date of X-Men number 50 was September 10th, 1968. The cover date was November of 1968. Credits for writing with Arnold Drake, uh, more affectionately, Arnold Drake. Penciling, Jim Steranko, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh. Oh, my God, the art in this book is awesome. I love it. Inking by John Tartaglioni. Lettering by Herb Cooper. Editing, of course, Stanley. Editor in chief, of course, Stanley, because, well, Stanley. The title is Hail Queen of Mutants. And uh, I have a story about this book. So this was probably the first Storanko book I ever bought. And I bought this book when I was in Berkeley visiting Rowan when she was at college. And uh, there was a comic book shop there with on the back wall. They had books that were hanging up on on the wall. Do you remember that place, Rowan? You mean Comic Relief? Comic Relief. That's the one. Yeah. So they had old X-Men books up there. And I bought issue X-Men issue number 11 and number 50. And right away I was... I loved the cover. I mean, this this is such a cool cover. It's it's green. It's got Lorna Dane in the middle of it, and there's energy flying all around her. Um, it's it's one of the wilder X Men covers to date. Well, you know, to, as far as 1968. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was great. There's a lot of didn't it grab you? Interesting. You yeah, this is there's a lot of interesting stuff about Starenko. Um, yeah, just like. I, I feel like the difference between the cover on 49 and the cover on 50 kind of shows like he was not long to work for Marvel after this one. This is no. Um, no. So uh, are any of you guys familiar with the Jim Stranko story with Stan Lee? Nope. Um, all I know is there was a, there, there were differences and they didn't agree on stuff. He kept asking so. him to draw the books more like Jack Kirby. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. and so, as I look at this book, I wonder if he like started turning in the art later and later, so that they had less time to mess with it mm -hmm. and make it because like the cover on the last one, it was like, oh, we'll would we'll change it and make it look like we want this. He's he's one of the first artists that in the research that I did that started using color as more to evoke the feeling that the characters are feeling as instead of being literally what's happening in the scene, like that, that ah. the, uh, the issue of the X-Men where the cover was all red. 
um, kind of indicating right. that, you know, the, the, the pain that everyone was in this, that's what he started doing all through the issues. He was considered to be like the, the first modernist artist in comic books, paving the way yeah. for guys like Sienkiewicz and Jay Lee yeah. and guys like that. I could see that. I, you know, for one, let, let Lorna Dane's costume in this totally wild. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to like this, this kind of psychedelic sixties feel totally wild. The, um, the art, not just the art itself. Of course, the art is different than anything we've ever seen, but the panel designs, like that just how the panels are so set well up. done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you've got like art bleeding off of the panel into the, into the gutters of the page. It's, it is so cool. Um, and then look at page two and three. This you is the first slash. The it's first amazing. double page spread, the first double page spread, and it is beautiful. It's epic. You've got like this sprawling landscape. You've got this speeding rocket car, and you've got a guy in a weird costume. I mean, it's it's all right there, and it's so cool. Well, look at the weird like city kind of structure too. I mean, it's really like fifties and sixties futurism right it's, there. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, very exactly. Art Deco. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, very cool and very cool even still like this is like you they're like oh you should draw more like jack kirby this looks like something jack kirby would draw but none of the art looks like anything jack kirby ever did yeah well, i i like it a whole lot better than kirby so let me tell you the story here so iceman and lorna get captured last issue right mesmero's people have a machine that will awaken lorna's latent mutant powers making her the queen of the mutants uh, at which point she's supposed to kind of lead them into conquering humanity, uh, allowing mutants to rule the world. So uh, they're going to wake up her latent powers and supposedly she's going to turn evil and, and rule the world, which sounds great for the bad guys. But uh, that, of course, makes Bobby a little nervous because he doesn't want that. He kind of likes this girl. Um, Mesmero explains that Lorna is the daughter of Magneto, which... Like I said, that scares Iceman a little. <laughs> um, the X-Men show up. Iceman escapes from his bonds. And Mesmero orders Lorna to use her powers to defeat her foes. In which case she does. And it blows the bad guys away. It's this powerful magnetic blast which just, just knocks these guys across the room. It also takes a lot of energy out of her so she's unconscious um uh angel i think flies away with her the x-men go after mesmero but the floor rises up before them stopping them and then magneto comes out lorna lorna dane's a loving father and uh that is basically the story so much more uh character development here I think more lasting significance in the plots and, and in the storytelling, this is stuff that carries on for decades, stuff that we, you know, we hear about and we don't forget. Just like diving right into it. I mean, this first page that with Ms. Moreau wearing the mask and then like these ominous faces hovering over just the reader. It's, it's, I mean, we know it's supposed to be Bobby and, and Lorna, but just the way they're looking down and the colors become, you know, that's dark and ominous. And then there's, you know, just the lighting change 
And then the, the being shut in the coffin is so claustrophobic. One of the interesting things, too, is if it kind of grabbed me at first. So Mesmero is wearing a mask. Why is he wearing that mask? So that they can sneak out of the building easier. <laughs> I I think that's pretty cool. It's it, to me, it just shows a little more complex story writing. Yeah. Uh, th than what we've come across. Yeah, because they are they very specific, and then, and not only not only did I like it because they had it in place, but it didn't take them five pages to explain it. Right. Very true. Yeah. Very true. No, this was just tighter storytelling overall. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's uh, I think it's kind of cool to like go from, you know, this uh, typical nineteen sixties X Men kind of eh, to all of a sudden, like a what if that, you know, shoot forward to 1990 and we're like, well, this was a lot better because the writing was better. The art was better. The the concept was better. And then coming out of that and rather than going back to the, the ho-hum of 1960s X-Men, we come into like 1968 X-Men and it's just sweet. <laughs> it's so awesome. <laughs> well, so. I mean, just the way, cause they're constant movement. Like, you could like it shows the car on page four. The car is going up the ramp. It doesn't have to show yeah. them getting out of the car, but now there's movement. You've got the guys in the background with the caskets, and they're moving. And Mesmero's telling his bit, and Lorna's on the cross. Um, maybe not the best choice of imagery, but you know, I I don't think that they were as worried about offending uh, religious um, groups as there have been in the late eighties and early nineties. Um, but yeah, I think that like you could just, you could feel the movement of the story, even though there was less art than has been in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Everything, yeah, all the, sure. everything about this, the art in this drove the story. Unlike a lot of the older issues, page 13, that art on that page is stunning and i'm not an art guy i don't usually pay attention to the art i'm i'm more a story guy but that that page there bottom panel had me sitting there just staring at it like it's there's so much happening in that that one panel when like really she's just blasting away her enemies but like yeah there's so much going on and it's just lines like that's all it's all line work that's all it is it's amazing it just evokes a stronger, think, the strong emotion of what yeah. is physically happening to yeah. everybody instead of a literal drawing of what's going on, which like, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I think, earlier. too, that this is a this is a good example of uh, storytelling in the on the part of the artist as well as the part of the writer. Um, you know, it, it you can, you know, just because you're an artist doesn't mean you're not a storyteller. And I think Stranko really intends to tell a story with his art, you know? Yeah. I, I do say that I feel that the headpiece that Polaris is wearing is falls a little bit short of expectation. It does look a little silly. I, I'm not a fan of that. And the other one, and I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of this. So on page 12, the first panel, it's the top third. They're supposed to be underground at this point, but with the choice of color on the background, the light blue it almost made it feel like they were back outside and i was wondering do you think that that was just part of the remaster or is that just was it just like a bad choice in the art or in the coloring my scan also has the light blue i kind of took it to be concrete though like a concrete wall 
Okay. Yeah, it just, I was like, I, it was jarring enough for me to notice and be like, oh, wait, what? And then I looked back and it's like, no, they're supposed to be underground. Okay. And that was why I wrote that down. Well, yeah. Thinking like that, though, isn't the Savage Land supposed to be underground? Yeah, that's true. That it's all that's all <laughs> underground, and there's sunlight and sunsets and stars. <laughs> it's, it's Jules Verne, man. It's Jules Jules yeah. Verne, uh, science fiction. I don't. I think. I don't. I don't think they're underground. I think they're just inside of a building, which which does which doesn't invalidate anything that you said. I just I'm yeah. looking at it, and I think because they were forcing their way into that building. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, it just, it was kind of, I was, I was just like, wait, what, what's going on? What did I miss? I had to go back and reread because I was like, wait, how did they get outside? I, I did, did they, did, did they ab abandon the plan to rescue Polaris and go on a picnic or something? No, it's just, it's another case. It's another case of a simplified background where they're not, yeah, yeah. they're not worried about the environment. They're just using color because, you know, at least like it's on not the next or page. Orange. Yeah. Well, the next page it is orange. That it's yeah. that's the panel above the the one that Drew was talking about. But again, that one like everything is orange. That's part of the aesthetic to that panel. That one wasn't. That one didn't set me if off. If you say so. I felt like that that was part of like them kind of being afraid and being in a panic and being on alert because Polaris was about to use her powers for the first time. But I mean. That it's not always bad, like page 14. There is no backgrounds, and that is an amazing picture. Well, same with the uh, the the so you were talking about the, the top panel on page 12, but the panel right before that, the last panel on page 11, same thing. It's it's there's no background, it's just white. There's yeah. like a little little you know structure in the in the background, but it that's that's also amazing art it makes everything pop piece. off more same page page 11 and page 14 both really pop because of the complete lack of backgrounds 51 is also stranko art but this is kind of heralding in the end of the silver age because even though stranko doesn't stick around for very long he has set the bar he has turned the wheel and now the ship is going in a different direction. And it's going to be a pain in the ass to turn it back around to what it used to be. Why would you do that? Um, so not long after this, Neil Adams is going to show up and we're going to see his artwork. It's just going to get so much better. I mean, this is exciting. Really exciting. I would I would um, I would love to hear interviews with the guys, all the guys who were working on this book from like 1964, 65, 66 to get their take on what was going on. Because I'm sure that Steranko was not the first to push back against Stan Lee saying, do, do Kirby, no, you know? No. I mean, it, there's a little, there's little bits here and there in all the books where it's, a, it's pushing the edge, just a smidgen. It's almost unnoticeable, but we're not here just, it's not like going from a tunnel to sunlight. There's been a very subtle change, I think, and, and growth in the book overall. So in reading some of like the, the history of Marvel comics and the biographies of Stan Lane, there's a lot of implications. I don't think anyone ever says it outright, but there are a lot of there, like a lot of people left Steve Ditko left because Stan. Oh yeah. Um, Steranko was fired because he refused to toe the line. Um, John Romita Sr. left a couple of times 
Um, oh, he got fired one time. Yeah, he got fired one time, but and he left once too, right? Yeah. Well, they they he got fired, and then they begged him. Well, they asked him to come back because they didn't have any any artists. Yeah, because um, everyone kept leaving because of Stan. When did Jack leave Marvel again? Nineteen seventy. Oh, I can't tell you offhand, but I want to say that that's about right. And then he went so, off to do stuff at DC. He so did he's come probably back to Marvel. Still, he's still probably with Marvel at this point when Stan's telling Steranko to draw more like Kirby. Yeah, it was. It was 1970 is when Jack Kirby left the first time. And I, I, I'm trying to think of what he might be doing at this point if he's doing Fantastic Four. I don't remember what year Silver Surfer started because uh, he did Silver Surfer. Um, but yeah, he, and, and at this point, Kirby was already working on heading out. He did go off to do DC stuff for DC and then come back to Mar Marvel for a little bit. But yeah, this is, I mean, comics as we know it are heading in, in a whole new direction. And it's, it's pretty cool. I, I'm just jazzed about it. Um, again, also jazz that Lorna Dane is here because now that Lorna Dane is in the universe, uh, there's another character that's not far away, and that's um, that's Alex Summers, aka Havoc. It looks like in 1967 he was doing Fantastic yeah. Four, Thor, and Tales of Suspense. Well, that makes it more <laughs> interesting in. in in my head as to why he was telling Steranko to draw like Kirby if Kirby wasn't the majority of the books. Like, if Kirby was doing most of the books, I could see how Stan would want consistency amongst the titles art-wise. But if he's not doing the majority, then why call for that? Because Stan had a vision, and that vision was that the X-Men looked like Kirby's Kirby artwork, you know? Yeah. And it, yeah, it's unfortunate that he couldn't see the benefit to having uh, different books stylistically. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Why have them look like they're all being drawn by the same guy? I mean, what, what, what's, what's so great about that? No, he wanted uh, continuity visually. He wanted the the universe to feel a, and look uh, a certain way. That's my guess. I mean, I don't know. If you think but... about it, think about it, it in the future. Uh, uh, X-Men's future in, in the comics you've had artists which is our past of course but in the future of what we're reading you've got artists like John Byrne who's going to show up right you've got uh, Neil Adams you've got uh, Dave Cockrum and uh, John Romita Jr. and all these guys are distinctively different they're all distinctly different They they and they're all great they're all great artists um, Art Art Adams or Alan Davis. You know, I don't think you can go wrong with any of those artists, and they kind of come one right after another as far as the whole list of guys that take over these books and that work on these books. Um, none of those guys look anything like Jack Kirby, and the book at this point soared to astronomical heights. The X Men became the flagship franchise of marvel comics <laughs> you know it's just unfortunate that that stan it's it seems that stan was in at this point in acting his editorial power in all the wrong spots i think it, yeah, it's fair to say there. i feel like from listing himself as the most important person 
in each book to long-winded references to other comics or notes to previous issues to trying to make everyone draw the same way. It's just those mm. are the were the wrong spots to focus. And I think that as the company grew and they kind of embraced change and diversity, it became nothing but, uh, the, like you said, that it changed the whole aspect of, of what the X-Men were viewed as, as a team and as a, as a book. And actually at this point, Stan Lee isn't, he's doing less and less for Marvel anyway, you know, um, he was sitting at home in... developing Stripperella. Yes. Stripperella. He's got his hands in, uh, you know, animated series and stuff like that. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's cool. Marvel Comics, X-Men Comics are changing, and I'm excited because what we've been reading up to now is a bunch of stuff that the character development is weak, the you know, the lore, the world building, it's all fairly weak. Um, these last two issues, 49 and 50, are strong in all of those things. You know, I mean, there is a whole a whole like group of people who worship Magneto, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, that's interesting to me. So at any rate, there is a backup story. Mm. And I know you guys have been waiting for this. This is uh, this boy, this bombshell. And it, uh, of course, carries on the origin of the beast credits written by Arnold Drake. Warner Roth did the pencils. John Verporten did the inks. Herb Cooper did the lettering. And of course, Stanley is there doing the editing. Um, there's a whole bunch of weirdness. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that kind of gives you an idea of what the beast is going to do later, right? He climbs the wall as a child. He just apparently sticks to it like Spider-Man. He becomes a football hero. He also catches thieves at a football game. So he really is a hero. The last panel i am so excited about because we i think we've even talked about this um we talked about the it biggest grand news. design when the grand design. grand design we were like what the fuck where did this come from yeah yeah so this is the conquistador <laughs> <laughs> in the last <laughs> yeah i know the conquistador i have been waiting for the conquistador for so long um of course he's another throwaway villain but uh i've was beginning to think I dreamt him up. Um, and then, <laughs> and then it was Ed Piscor who, yeah, Ed Piscor actually made me realize, no, it wasn't it either. Either I didn't dream him up or I dreamt him up while my mind was linked with others. That's weird. <laughs> I'd like to think that the conquistador is a character. But, <laughs> so yeah, in grand design, we talked a little bit about the conquistador and everybody was like, I, I think Shane's, comment was like i thought i was having a stroke um <laughs> who is this guy why did he show up does anybody know who the lackey is that's with him that's toad it looks like toad it, no. look, it looks no. like mastermind it looks like mastermind but it's not it's just a guy named chico um oh <laughs> he's just doing the same thing with his hands that the toad does occasionally yeah then. that's it's it's a common lackey it's a common lackey maneuver um but yeah, so these guys are watching the beast through some kind of, you know, electronic surveillance system. And well, uh, they're going to try to. 
wasn't it tell wasn't it just television because the football game was televised to like 30,000 oh, people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I put I put too much weight into it. You're right. It was just a yeah, CBS. Um <laughs> so I, I did want to say one of the things I felt like because of the way the art was and the main story, it made the art for this story work better because yeah. it was oh, I yeah, your mind has been changed. You are a convert. You now feel okay with everything. Um, <laughs> no, I just felt like, oh, now it's Praise a, Magneto. Now it's a throwback to like pre-code art. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it, it yeah. this is this is the this is the art of a time when Beast would have been a child. Yeah. And it, Yeah, that's a good point. And so it made like because the art in the story before was such a departure from from the story in this backup, it it I was like, well, you know what? I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. And then good point. My, but good. I did have a problem with the dudes um like um uh, committing crimes, um, robbing the box office in suits. Like, I mean, I know and this is not the only spot that this happens. That used to be like that was like a trope in like gangster movies. They'd get dressed up and go yeah. rob banks and stuff like that. But where did that start? It's so weird. It's like, what are you doing? I'm going to go gun someone down. What are you going to wear? A three piece. <laughs> I got to get a new hat first. Double, double breasted coat and penny loafers. If I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out in style. I, I think what you said made sense when you said that this worked probably because of the art from the other. I think just the whole climate of the last two issues have gotten me so worked up that I even liked this little backup story. I did. Um, I did. I liked it. I was like, okay, this isn't yeah. bad. Like I, other than the, 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 the best, the, the, the criminals going for best dressed of 19, what, why this was 15 years before. So 1952. Yeah. I even, <laughs> I even thought they were cool because they had masks on. They look like a uh, green Hornet. Yeah, they did. <laughs> but also they carried grenades. <laughs> that's a, yeah like you know? I, I feel like the, the 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 restrictions at the army surplus stores were a lot looser in 1952 <laughs> apparently <laughs> very good yep. i thought it was cool that hank was a football player uh, a good football player but also that during a game when there are people robbing the place he pulls off his helmet and he throws the helmet at them to knock him down. It was just, it was a heroic scene, you know. And then has his um, teammate take off his helmet so he could throw that helmet too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Toss me your helmet. I'm going to hit this one in the back. And hey, he it's teamwork. It's <laughs> That's teamwork. No, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes the dream work. I like it. Um, oh, see, I thought that rate. maybe that Rob, that the, the criminal that had the, the hand grenade bought it out of the back of Soldier of Fortune magazine, but Soldier huh. of Fortune magazine didn't exist until 1975. So you couldn't oh, hire yeah, assassins yeah. until the mid 70s. Uh, well, and... how did you get them then? Sent <laughs> <laughs> away. Stand. Yeah. <laughs> See, monkeys are well, assassins. Well. Which do we need more? <laughs> so, so because because. Issue 51 is a continuation of the whole, you know, Lorna Dane and Jim Stranko doing the the artwork. The backup story I'm also excited about because God damn it, the conquistador. You know? <laughs> Finally, some closure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. 
Well, that is kind of a wrap. Next next episode, we're going to talk about number 51 and number 52. At any rate, that was House of X Book Club. And thank you guys for joining me. Have a good night. Good night, everybody. Thank you. See ya.